to the book of Number, Numbers in the Old Testament. Uh, today, if you are visiting with us, we are glad to have you. Uh, you should know that you are joining us in a study through this book of Numbers. Uh, and Numbers, if you're unfamiliar with it, has lots of different kinds of material in it. Uh, so there are censuses, we've seen some of those, there are camp arrangements, there are laws, there are organizational principles for God's people, uh, and there are stories. And today, in chapter 11, we're getting into the first major section of narrative in Numbers. Uh, today, uh, well, you may remember that last week, uh, if you were with us, uh, we heard the people leaving finally Mount Sinai after 11 months there at the base of the mountain where they received the covenant of God. And they're now on their way to the promised land in Canaan. And today in chapter 11, we will hear and see what happened in the first two places that they stopped. So Numbers chapter 11, we will read the entire chapter, verses 1 through 35. And uh, you can find that on page 119 of our cart Bibles. Before we read this text, let's go to the Lord together and seek his blessing on our study. Let's pray. Gracious Lord and God, we thank you that this is your words, and as we come to it, we confess that we need your Holy Spirit that we might understand it. Lord, we can piece together much of the information, but our hearts will remain cold and hard and lifeless unless you, by your Spirit, give us faith in yourself. And so we pray that you would. Help us, Father, as we read, to hear more than just a story of long ago, but to hear the real history of what you have done among your people, that we might look in faith to the promised one who came to fulfill all of your promises, even Jesus Christ our Lord. We pray in his name. Amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in Numbers chapter 11. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes, and when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taberah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. Remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Now the manna was like coriander seed. Its appearance was like that of bdellium. The people went about and gathered it and ground it in hand mills or beat it in mortars and boiled it in pots and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. Moses said to the Lord, why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight, that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive all this people? Did I give them birth, that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom, as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land you swore to give to their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give to all, to this, all this people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. 
I'm not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once, if I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there. And I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it yourself alone. And say to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall not eat just one day, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or twenty days, but a whole month, until it comes out at your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you, because you have rejected the Lord who is among you. You've wept before him, saying, Why did we come up out of Egypt? But Moses said, The people among whom I am number 600,000 on foot, and you have said, I will give them meat that they may eat a whole month. Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them and be enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them and be enough for them? And the Lord said to Moses, Is the Lord's hand shortened? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. And he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other Medad, and the spirit rested on them. And they were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent so that they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. Then a wind from the Lord sprang up, and it brought quail from the sea and Let them fall beside the camp about a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side around the camp and about two cubits above the ground. And the people rose all that day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail. Those who gathered least gathered ten omers, and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. While the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Therefore the name of that place was called Kibroth Hataava, because there they buried the people who had the craving. From Kibroth Hataava, the people journeyed to Hazaroth, and they remained at Hazaroth. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. Now, uh, as my wife is is closing in on her final months of pregnancy, we are getting that question more and more frequently. 
The question is, have you picked a name for your baby yet? Uh, the short answer is no. Uh, we, we are starting to get some suggestions, and so if you would like, you can fill out a card. No, no. Uh, we're getting some suggestions, but we have not picked a name yet. But I can assure you that when we do, we will do that very American thing. And that is to choose a name based on how it sounds rather than for what it means. That's what we do nowadays, most of us. Uh, last year in America, the most popular name for boys was Asher. Now, I doubt uh, that it was popular simply because Asher means happiness in Hebrew. Probably most of the people who named their sons Asher didn't even know that it meant happiness in Hebrew because here in America, the name, the meaning of the name is often secondary. But you know that in many other cultures, the meaning comes first. Such is the case in the biblical world. Uh, take, for example, the leaders of the tribes of Israel. We've heard that list of 12 names several times by now. Uh, and the chief of the tribe of Dan was a man named Ahiezer. Now, we can imagine or we can assume that perhaps his parents, Ahiezer's parents, wished that their home would be a happy home full of brotherly love because Ahiezer means my brother is my helper. What a wonderful name. On the other hand, you wonder what was happening in the home where the chief of the tribe of Naphtali was born. His name is Ahira, and it means, my brother is wicked. <laughs> so, uh, there's a meaning there. And all throughout the Bible, there are significances to the names that people are given. And you see that, and you recognize that. Moses himself, his name means one who was drawn out because Pharaoh's daughter drew him out of the water. Jesus, his name means Yahweh is salvation, because in Jesus, Yahweh has come down to work salvation for his people. Same goes for places. So Jerusalem is the foundation of peace, and Bethel is the house of God, and the first two campsites in the direction of the promised land are forever christened. One was named the place of burning, and the other is the graves of craving. Those are the boundary markers of our text today. They were the first uh, landmarks, if you will, on the way toward the promised land. So verse 3 tells us the name of that place was called Tibera because there the fire of the Lord burned among them. And then verse 34, the name of that place was uh, Kibroth Hata'ava because there they buried the people who had the craving. That is a pretty rough start to the next 40 years in the wilderness. Uh, it's also a confirmation, I think, of what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He said that these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Now, as we are reading our hearts, I think if we're reading them correctly, the complaining and the grumbling that we hear at Tibera and at Kibroth Hata'ava, well, it ought to sound pretty familiar to us. It ought to sound familiar because we often say the same things. We sometimes make those same complaints. It should sound familiar because we also forget how much good the Lord has done for us. Well, today our text is a wake-up call to see the seriousness of the sin of grumbling. It's also a call to find our satisfaction in the Lord and in Him alone. Three things I, I want to show you in this text today. The first is our problem with complaining. Our problem 
with complaining. Ian Duguid says that complaining doesn't get much attention in the church nowadays. He's probably right. Complaining is the sort of thing that we could probably put in the category of those sins we don't hear many sermons about. Things like gluttony, things like greed, things like worldly anxiety, those sins that we minimize, we make excuses for, and we almost never deal with in the way that they ought to be dealt with. But when we see our complaining from God's point of view, well, it tells a different story. In the opening verses of chapter 11, we, we hear what happened at Tabera. And what happened there in those few verses becomes something of a study in miniature of the hard hearts of God's people. The outline's pretty simple. The, the people are faced with difficulty in their travels, and as soon as they face difficulty, they raise their complaint in the hearing of the Lord. Once they raise their complaint, the anger of the Lord is kindled, and the anger of the Lord continues until their mediator and their prophet intercedes for them. So there's difficulty and a complaint. There's anger and intercession. That's the formula in verses 1 to 3. And for the, much of the rest of the book, really, that formula becomes a pattern that is repeated and expanded. Expanded until it touches every rank and file of people in Israel. It begins here in verse 4 with the, the group that is called the rabble that is among them. If you have a King James, you'll notice that it says the mixed multitude. These are probably the Gentile fellow former slaves that were also in Egypt. And when the Israelites were going up out of their bondage, these other people saw an opportunity for freedom. And so they went up with Israel, but they did not share the faith of Israel. And so they were a mixed multitude, the rabble that was among them. And we would maybe like to just blame outside influences for everything, but very shortly that complaint that goes in the rabble spreads to the Israelites themselves. And then by, cha uh, by chapter 11, verse 11, Moses himself is doing a bit of grumbling. And then in chapter 12, it's Aaron and Miriam who are joining in the grumbling and complaining, complaining about their brother's leadership. And then we come back to start all over again in chapter 14, and the people are crying out, would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Everyone, it seems, can find some reason why they would rather not have what the Lord has chosen to give to them. And this brings us to the first problem with the sin of complaining. That is that complaining is contagious. It's contagious. It's the sort of thing, a, a sin that spreads like an infection. Chalk it up to sympathy, maybe. Uh, that's a, putting a, a good spin on it, I suppose. Somebody comes to us with their story of how life has been hard, and we want to be sympathetic. We want to be a friend. We don't want to lecture them. And so we, we're slow to defend the Lord's goodness. We are slow to rebuke the complaining that comes into our ears, and it doesn't take long for the complaining in our ears to become the complaining in our hearts to become the complaining on our lips. Discontentment with God becomes the default setting for our conversations, and then we too find it easy to be dissatisfied with what God gives to us. Complaining is contagious, and we see that here. Complaining is also unbalanced. Take a look again at verse 5. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic, but now our strength is dried up and there is nothing but this manna to look at. This is what we might call selective nostalgia. 
They are barely a year outside of bondage, and all they can think about are all those good things that they no longer have. The fish that cost nothing, they say. What about your slavery and, and your labor? What about the bricks made without straw? What about the deaths of your firstborn when Pharaoh became fearful of the Hebrews? Well, we read verse 5 and we wonder, how could these people be so blind? But the answer is that complaining always has to do that. It's the only way that it can continue. It's the only way that it can sustain itself to, to make these unbalanced sort of arguments, and that's because complaining is a form of self-justification. When we complain, uh, it is an exercise in gathering all of the reasons why we deserve better, why we have been treated unfairly, why things are harder for us than they are for other people. That is the difference, by the way, between acknowledging our sufferings and complaining about them. You realize that the scripture never tells us that we have to pretend that our suffering doesn't exist. Never tells us to be silent about the hard things that we face. And there is room in humble dependence upon the Lord to acknowledge our suffering and our afflictions in prayer to him. There is even room within the Christian community to share those afflictions and sufferings with other people so that they can pray for us too. But complaining is different. Complaining is self-justification. And when we complain, we become our own defense attorney against God and his providence. And to be honest, we're not very good lawyers, most of us. And so in our defense, we make biased arguments. We, we raise up straw men. We paint ourselves in the most flattering light possible. We have to do this in order for our complaining uh, to stay afloat because the moment we see our situation as it really is, all of our defense is deflated. You notice that. They said the fish and the melons that cost them nothing. Contrast that with verse 9. It says that the manna fell on the camp in the night and it came down with the dew. Talk about a gift freely given. It literally falls from heaven for their sustenance. They said, all we have is this manna to look at. And you might want to say, well, you're not supposed to just look at it. It's given to you to eat, and so they could. So the manna could be ground, it could be boiled, it could be baked into cakes. It says that it tasted like cake, probably pastry, something rich. Cakes based with, baked with oil. The description in Exodus says it was sweet, like honey. I know, no matter how delicious something is, if you eat enough of it, you'll get sick of it sooner or later. I realize that. But the point is that in their complaining, they selectively focused on all the difficulty while they ignored God's goodness. That's how complaining works. It's contagious, it's unbalanced, and worst of all, complaining makes gods out of grumblers. We see that most clearly in the complaint that came from Moses. Verse 11, Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? Why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Now, maybe that sounds like an interesting claim because you remember what Moses has just said, his sales pitch to his brother-in-law, Hobab. Why don't you go up with us, Hobab? Why don't you travel with Israel into the land the Lord is giving us because God has promised good 
to Israel. The word there, good, is tov. As in, God saw all that he made, and behold, it was tov. It was good, it was proper, it was just as it should be. That's what he said to Hobab. But now he's saying, oh Lord, why have you treated me ill? The word there is raw. It's a version of the same complaint that the people made in verse 1. Verse 1, the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their raw, about their misfortunes. You can almost translate that as evil, the evil that they believed had befallen them. Do you see what Moses is doing? Not only is he defending himself, but now he is accusing the Lord. He's saying the Lord is not holding up his end of the bargain. God has promised one thing. He, he promised good. He, he promised favor. But now Moses is getting something else entirely. He's getting evil. He's getting misfortune. He's being treated badly. And Moses is making the case that always stands behind all of our complaining. The case is that we know what is best and that God has been unjust. That's what's so sinful about our dissatisfaction. It is that at its core, all of our grumbling and complaining against the Lord is a mutiny. It's a rebellion. Complaining begins when we look at our outward circumstances and we work our way backward to say that, you know, if we were in charge, things would be different. If we were God, things would be better. I wonder if you ever fall into the same sort of complaining, the same sort of rebellion. I realize that some of us are more prone to it than others, right? Some of us grumble, others are grumblers. And it's a trustworthy saying that Christ came to save grumblers, of which I am the chief. So I know what we're talking about here, right? But if Moses' part in this story teaches us anything, it teaches us that we can all become complainers when the situation suits us. So I wonder where this rebellion shows up in your life. I wonder if you look back on those good old times when life was better. Maybe you had that different job. Maybe you had some greater freedom, some, some more independence. Maybe you were younger then. Maybe you had better friendships. Maybe you had better health. Maybe you had better whatever. And maybe you're tempted to look at where the Lord has brought you and to say, why have I not found favor with the Lord? Why does God insist on treating me like this? If I were in charge, things would be a whole lot better. Well, that's a dangerous place to be. It would be a terrible place for the Lord to leave us. And so the second thing, second main point we need to see in this passage is God's power to provide. We've seen our problem with complaining and now God's power to provide. Now, between the leader and the people... Uh, there are two separate complaints that come before the Lord. The people speak first, and, and they complain about their monotonous diet. And then Moses speaks up, and he complains about the people. <laughs> he complains about the burden of leading all of these disagreeable complainers. Uh, and then in verses 16 to 23, the Lord responds, and he deals with both of these issues in reverse order. He speaks to Moses first, then he speaks to the people but the main takeaway from both of them is that God is perfectly able to supply more than his people could need or want. The takeaway is that God's power to provide is 
unrestricted. Pay attention to how the Lord deals with Moses. He, he tells him that he's going to give Israel the leadership that they need. So he gives them a command. He says, gather for me, not for yourself, Moses, gather for me 70 elders of the people, people that, that you know are in charge, people that are respected, elders and officers of the people. Gather them for me. In verse 17, I will take some of the spirit that is on you, and I will put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you may not bear it yourself alone. Now, you may remember that there is a parallel text. It's recorded for us in Exodus chapter 18, uh, where Moses' father-in-law, the father of Hobab, Jethro, shows up and he gives similar advice to Moses. He shows up and he says, you know, Moses, it looks like you're wearing yourself out trying to be everything to everybody. It seems like you're trying to solve everybody's problems and their problems are too big for you, so why don't you gather uh, chiefs and judges over tens and fifties and hundreds and thousands, and you place men in the people of Israel to be your administrative helpers. Now this passage is different. This is a spiritual burden, and it's a different answer, but it's very similar. Because here was Moses wearing himself out, trying to solve everybody's problems, trying to take on himself more than he ought to, and he's saying, I can't bear this burden by myself alone. Maybe you know some leaders, maybe you know some pastors who try to do just that. Somewhere deep inside, it feels good to be wanted. feels like they need to be needed, and so they try, and they exhaust themselves trying to be everything for everyone. I think if we started psychoanalyzing Moses beyond what the text tells us, we might begin to wonder if he's got some sort of leadership complex. Look back at verse 12. Moses has to say, he, he asked the Lord, did I conceive all this people? Did I give them birth? That you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give to their fathers. Some of our modern translations don't know what quite to do with that statement. The problem is that the word for nurse is actually masculine, not the feminine form that we expect. And so people read that and, and they say that Metaphor doesn't make sense, Moses. Uh, why would uh, the word essentially means a foster father? Why would the Lord require a foster father to carry a nursing child in his bosom? And, and they say the metaphor breaks down, but actually it's the breakdown of the metaphor that makes it work. You dads, you remember bouncing your babies, don't you? And you shush them and you distract them. You try to find something that will make them happy. But if that child is hungry, there's only so much that dad can do. And that's what Moses is saying. I don't have the resources. I can't do this. His complaint is a cry for help. He's saying to the Lord, I can't give this people what they need. I'm not adequate for the task that you've given me. And I can't lead this people all by myself. But the Lord is able to. The Lord can do it. So he responds graciously. He's going to put his spirit on 70 chosen men. He's going to provide a full company of spirit-filled elders for his people. And Moses, who never, by the way, actually did have to carry all this burden by himself alone, finally realizes that he won't be expected to either. Because God himself has the power to provide what his people need. 
But then the Lord says he's also able to provide more food than they could possibly want. The Lord says, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow you shall eat meat. And then in verse 19, you shall eat not just one day or two days or five days or ten days or twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out at your nostrils and it becomes loathsome to you. When we read that at first blush, it almost sounds like God is being vindictive. Like his children have asked him for bread and he responds by giving them a stone. It almost sounds like God does not know how to give good gifts to his children when they ask them. But actually, God is simply saying, I will give you exactly what you've asked for. I'm going to give you what you think you desire. I'm going to give what you're asking for because you think that when you have this, you will be satisfied. You want meat? I'll give you meat. I'll give you meat until you've had so much that you can't stand it anymore. And it's not going to take very long until that new thing becomes something that you wish you could get rid of. It is, by the way, the same thing that happened with the manna. That shows up in Exodus as well. Barely a a few days walk outside of their bondage in Egypt. And they're crying out for the Lord to give them something. And so he gives them food. Grain from heaven. Psalm 78 calls it the bread of angels. The Lord showers upon them this miraculous, wonderful, daily provision. And here they are, turning up their noses at it. And now the Lord is saying that he has the power to give them exactly what they're craving. But you know, even when they have it, they're not going to be happy. You see, the problem is that they're not dissatisfied with the menu. They're dissatisfied with the God who set the menu. Verse 20. I'm going to do this. Why? Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you. They're not rejecting the manna. They're not just rejecting God's gifts. They're not just rejecting God's goodness. They are rejecting the God who gives these things. You have rejected the Lord who is among you. You have wept before him saying, why did we come up out of Egypt? In other words, why did we ever trust that God could take care of us in the first place? Why didn't we say no when God said, come with me and have good things for yourself? Why did we ever say, Lord, would you please save us? We would be better off on our own. That's the problem, actually. Because here is the Lord already in the process of providing for them more than they could ever imagine. He is leading them to a place of plenty, a land flowing with milk and honey, freedom and inheritance for their children forever, but in their affliction they do not trust his power to provide. In their distress they have ceased believing in the promises of the Lord. You notice that Moses is also falling into the same trap. So Moses does some quick math to wonder if if God has really calculated what the catering bill is going to be for something like this. Right? What if, what if we slaughter all the herds and all the flocks? Would that be, the key word is, enough? What if all of the fish in all the seas were caught for these people? Would that be enough? Perhaps as a prophet, Moses speaks better than he knows. How much is enough for a people who are perpetually unsatisfied? Let me ask you, how much do you need until you don't want any more? What if God gave you everything that you ever asked for? 
Would you be happy then? Would you have enough? Would you be satisfied? Do you think it would help you to find your satisfaction in the Lord if he gave you every whim and every trinket and every comfort that you wanted, no questions, even the good things, right? I'm not just talking about those outlandish prayers that we, we thought about praying once but then decided, no, 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 I, I shouldn't ask for that. What about the good things that you prayed for? What if God gave you everything you ever asked for, no questions asked? Would that help you to find your satisfaction in him or would it teach you that God is good so long as he's giving you stuff? Sinclair Ferguson says that he knows many constitutional grumblers, he calls them. Constitutional grumblers who claim that Romans chapter 8 is their favorite passage in the Bible. God works all things together for the good of those who love him. And then they go on and they complain their way through their Christian life and, and expose that they don't really believe or love Romans chapter 8 at all. Well, in the end, it comes down to a matter of faith, doesn't it? The question is, do we actually believe that God can be trusted even when we don't get what we think we should have? The question is, can we actually count on him to provide what is best even when what is best is not what we want? His power to provide is not restricted. The problem is not that he can't give you the things that you want. Very often the problem is that it wouldn't be good for you to have them. Even those good things. And I say that realizing that some of you in this congregation have prayed for good things that I have never had to pray for, never had to ask the Lord for. And the struggle of your faith is seeing the Lord seem to not answer that request for something that is good and glorious and God-honoring. And you wonder, when will he come through for you? When will he give you what is best? The Lord always gives us what is best. Sometimes what is best is easy and comfortable. Sometimes what is best is hard. It's unsettling. But the Lord knows us. He knows the medicine that we need. And he is determined to teach his children to find their satisfaction only in him. This brings us to our final point. The final point is the satisfaction that God wants. The satisfaction that God wants. Now we just heard, verses 16 to 23, we just heard the Lord promise to provide for his people. And in the rest of the chapter, we see the Lord making good on that promise. But the story unfolds in two very different directions. On the one hand, he blesses Moses and he blesses the people with the leadership that they need. And on the other hand, he judges them with the things that they want. You notice that when Moses gathers these 70 elders, really 68, he gathers 68 elders. Verse 25 tells us that the Lord did as he promised. He came down and he spoke to him. He took some of the spirit that was on Moses, he put it on them. And when they received the Spirit, they prophesied, though they didn't continue doing it. It's a, it's a sign that it was a, a, a one-time thing. It was, a, it was an authenticating experience. In more modern language, we might say that they prophesied, not that they received the gift of prophecy. They were being marked out as men that God had chosen. You remember the same thing happened to Saul. 
when he was anointed to be king over Israel. He met the prophets. The Holy Spirit fell upon him. He prophesied for a time, and that time was to show that God had chosen him. That's well and good. We understand that. But the interesting, happens, the interesting thing happens here when these two elders who were not at the tabernacle also receive the same outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We have no idea why Eldad and Medad, I don't know what their names mean, by the way. We have no idea why Eldad and Medad were not at the tabernacle, but they weren't. And the Lord poured out his spirit on them just where they were. He ordained them just like the other men. And when Joshua heard of it, he was worried. Now Moses helps us to see that he was worried for Moses' sake. Moses says he was jealous for his sake, and maybe you can understand why. Sixty-eight men received the outpouring of the Spirit in the tabernacle, and when they did, there was an obvious outward connection to the authority of Moses. They were being deputized, you could say. They were being set apart as helpers to bear the burden with Moses, but here are these two other men, and they received the Spirit in the camp, and it was as if God is bypassing Moses altogether. The Lord is showing that he is able to raise up leaders for himself. And so here is Moses wearing himself out, trying to be God's employee of the month, every month of the year. Here's Moses struggling to keep the whole camp together. And these two men start speaking in the spirit. And it's as if the Lord is saying, you know, Moses is important, but he's not exactly necessary. God himself is sufficient to give the people what they need. The goal is not so that they would find their sufficiency and their satisfaction in Moses, but so that they would be satisfied in the Lord. And Moses gets it. When he sees the Spirit at work, he responds like a changed man. Verse 29, would that all the Lord's people were prophets. Would that the Lord would pour out his Spirit on all of them. And he gets it. God is able to give his people what they need. He doesn't depend on Moses. He doesn't need his boldness. He doesn't need his wisdom. He doesn't need his advice. He doesn't need his people skills. God is sufficient. And in him we can be satisfied. He always gives us exactly what we need. And we don't need to complain to get his attention. On the other hand, Moses responds as a changed man and the people seem to remain hopelessly unmoved by the power of God. The major takeaway of all these details with all of these quail is that this is an astronomically large number. This is a quantity of birds that no one on earth could have begun to calculate at that time. So they just tell us where they fell and how deep they were and how many you could gather little by little. They fell around the camp in a day's journey. That's about 8 to 12 miles in any direction. They were so thick that they were piled up in some places up to 3 feet deep. There were so many birds that 600,000 people took 36 hours of backbreaking labor just to gather them all. And there were so many that each man, probably each household, gathered something like the equivalent of two 55-gallon barrels full of birds. That's a lot of quail. It was an enormous quantity. It's somewhere that borders on the edge of unbelievable. But it's one more miracle from the hand of God. 
The very, very same God who, who filled Egypt with frogs and darkness. The very same God who parted the Red Sea. The very same God who turned the Nile River into blood. And here he is working another miracle in their sight. And we do not hear a single word of repentance or thanksgiving from anyone in the camp. Do you notice that? I realize that this is an argument from silence, right? I'm pointing out what is not there rather than what is there, but isn't that what we should expect? Fast forward 1,500 years, time of the New Testament, Jesus is in a boat with Peter. He says, Peter, cast your net on the other side if you didn't catch any fish. And suddenly there are so many that the boat is sinking, and Peter falls on his knees and cries out in the presence of the Almighty. Isn't that what we should see here? But there's nobody on their knees. There's nobody crying out. There's nobody humbled. There is nobody praying. There is nobody praising the Lord. Nobody standing in awe of the inexhaustible power of the God of the universe. What do they do? They go into these thousands of acres full of birds, miraculously provided, and they gather them up and they sit down to eat. And nobody even says grace. Maybe it helps you to understand the judgment that comes. These people have witnessed the wonders of the Lord, and it did not teach them a thing about his goodness. So verse 33 records those fateful words. While the meat was still in their teeth, before it had been consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled among the people, and the Lord struck them down with a very great plague. Psalm 106 has a different angle on this. Psalm 106, verse 15, this is uh, the Jewish Publication Society version. It says, he gave them what they asked for, and he made them waste away with it. It's a terrible judgment, isn't it? It's Romans chapter 1 in preview. Men in their unrighteousness suppress the truth, what can be known about God, and so he gives them what they want. He gives them unrighteousness. He gives them falsehood. He gives them the pursuit of their own evil desires. And so Romans chapter 1 repeats that phrase, God gave them up. He handed them over. God gave them what they want. I think we come away from this chapter saying, praise the Lord who does not give us everything we think we want. Now, what's the takeaway for us today? On the one hand, the takeaway is to beware of the way that you grumble. Simply put, be beware of the way that you can receive God's gifts and never learn to trust him. Beware the discontentment that refuses to find satisfaction in the Lord. But on the other hand, the takeaway is we ought to praise the Lord that the prayer of Moses was answered. Jesus told his disciples, Luke chapter 11, verse 13, Jesus said, if you then, you people, you humans, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? Will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Moses said, would that the Lord would pour out His Spirit on all of His people. And on the day of Pentecost, it happened. The Spirit was given as a, as a gift freely 
uh, poured out and freely received on all those who believe. He himself is the gift of God who teaches us to be dissatisfied with our sin. He is the one who teaches us to be uncomfortable with our complaining. The Holy Spirit is the one who leads us with cords of love directly to the God who has provided all that our souls could need or want in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to him by faith, he teaches you more than just how sinful your complaining is, by the way. He also teaches you how your complaining has been forgiven. How it's been covered by the sacrifice of Christ on your behalf. That's the pattern, isn't it? There's hardship and complaining and intercession and grace. When the people cried out, Moses became an interceder. An intercessor for the people. Then the Lord forgave their iniquity. How much more can we not have confidence in the prayers of our great prophet and king, our mediator, that they will be heard? How much more can we trust that the same Savior who sent his spirit is also interceding to bring us peace with the Father? And so it means that the takeaway today for us is twofold. On the one hand, if you've never trusted in the Lord, the answer is to repent, not just of your complaining and your grumbling, but of all of your iniquities, to repent and believe the good news. But if you have already done so, if you're already walking with him, the takeaway is to praise the Lord, because he gives you all that you could need, because he gives you himself. Let's pray together. Gracious Lord and God, we thank you for your word and we pray that you would teach us how much you love us. Show us that you always give us the things that are necessary, that you are teaching us to find satisfaction in you and not just in your gifts. Help us, Lord, to follow you faithfully, to believe and trust and to love you. We pray that you would do a work in all of your people and call many to yourself who do not yet know you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. come now to a table that proclaims to us the power of God to provide what we need in Christ Jesus. The table before us is set with tangible signs and symbols, both bread and a cup, proclaiming to us the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the sacrifice for sinners who could not save themselves. Just as our bodies are sustained by taking in food and drink, so also our souls are sustained by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ receiving his goodness as a gift from outside of ourselves. It means that we do not come as those who are full to the table, but we come as those who are hungry, those who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And we find at this table the promise that those who hunger and thirst will be filled in Jesus Christ. This table is for all those who recognize their need of the Lord Jesus Christ and recognize his promise to fill you with the good things